Thanks for downloading this teacher magazine podcast from our behaviour management series. I'm Dominique Russell. In our annual reader survey, we ask our readers to share one piece of advice they would pass on to a fellow educator. Each year, many of you are wanting to remind other teachers to not take a student's behaviour personally, because it's usually linked to a deeper issue a student's facing. So how can teachers go about identifying the underlying causes of a student's behaviour and then approach responding to it in a respectful and effective way? To dissect these questions further, I'm joined today by Senior Lecturer at Monash University, Dr Erin Leaf, and PhD student and former primary school teacher, Russell Fox. Erin joined Monash University in 2018 after working as a therapy assistant in a school for children with developmental disabilities in Massachusetts in the United States, and completing her master's and doctoral degrees in behaviour sciences. Now, in her capacity at Monash University, Erin heads up a postgraduate course in Applied Behaviour Analysis. Russell's PhD research, which you'll hear him speak about throughout the episode, focused on understanding what's required to support teachers to successfully and sustainably implement evidence-based behaviour support practices, specifically school-wide positive behavioural interventions and supports, or SWPBIS. They both bring fascinating insight to our discussion about behaviour management today. So let's kick the conversation off. Erin and Russell, thanks for joining me on today's podcast episode. Each year, we ask our readers to share one piece of advice they'd give to a fellow educator. And time and time again, they're always wanting to let other teachers know to not take a student's behaviour in the classroom personally, because it's usually indicative of a deeper issue that they're facing, one that's perhaps outside of the classroom. So is it quite common for behaviour issues to be a product of a struggle that a student's having, rather than them deciding to simply act out for no apparent reason? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess my piece of advice to teachers would be that students do well when they can. And this is uh, a quote that I've taken from Dr. Ross Green and his work on a collaborative problem-solving model for helping students with their behaviors at school. What this means is that challenging behavior at school and at home is often the product of an environment in which the demands of the classroom exceed the abilities of the student at any given point in time. And challenging behavior, we think of it like an iceberg. What we see is the behavior itself. In other words, what the behavior looks like. But this doesn't tell us a whole heck of a lot about why the student is engaging in that behavior. So we need to look deeper to discover the reasons why students are acting out. And there can be a whole host of different reasons why. Sometimes it might be related to factors outside of the classroom, but sometimes, actually pretty often, it has something to do with things that are happening at school as well. Um, And when we look to discover the reason why our students are acting out, we call this identifying the function. And a big part of the work that I do is helping teachers learn to think functionally when addressing challenging behavior. 
And this means, again, looking beyond just what the behavior looks like to discover everything that lies below the surface um, that's contributing to the why. And one key assumption underpinning this function-based model of behavior support is that there are no challenging kids, per se, but rather contexts that support challenging behavior. And we really need to be cautious about chasing the causes of challenging behavior inside the child and viewing these behaviors as a fixed part of the child's personality that cannot be changed. We need to spend more time looking into the environment to discover why the child is acting out. We'll talk a little bit more about how we can do this. A function-based model really gives us the tools to be able to do this, and it gives us hope that there are a lot of things we can do to really help our students with their behaviors at school. That's right. Um, commonly, uh, students find work or social situations difficult, and, and school schools are one place where young people can't really opt out. They're conscripted. That There are so many situations in a school day where academic or social skills, um, skill deficits can be exposed. And it's really common for this to lead to the development of behaviours that are problematic for the student and their peers. And like an example would be uh, a student may not have developed effective communication skills and has relied on using physical aggression or threats to access toys or materials that they like. And alternatively, in a high school um, context, we see high school students who consistently engage in disruptive behaviours in difficult subjects um, and are then uh, no longer required to participate in that learning is a nice way of saying they've been exited from the classroom. So um, in, in many of these instances, um, it sort of works as escape. Their, their escape from tricky work um, in a high school setting can often be celebrated um, by their peers socially as well. And in instances where uh, difficult work is, is avoided and celebrated um, by peers, we can probably expect more of that type of behavior in the future. Um, and, and it isn't personal, but it sure can feel like it. As a teacher, when you're experiencing that, it, it definitely can feel like that. But as Erin said, um, students do well when they can. Um, they're communicating their needs as best as they can with the skills that they have. Um, and when we engage uh, in effective problem-solving processes, like the function-based model Erin described, um, we can actually better understand what their behavior is trying to achieve, the skill deficits that we need to address, and we can then, as teachers, start to help them uh, learn new responses to meet these same challenging situations. Um, and these processes are great, um, but th there are some, some challenges for teachers in, in implementing them in their classrooms. Um, and so some of the findings from my research, which we'll talk about a bit later on, have indicated um, some pretty predictable reasons why teachers find this tough. Um, teachers are busy. They've got a lot on their plate already. And so engaging in some of these processes can, can take time. And they also um, don't necessarily feel like they've been particularly well prepared to undertake this. Absolutely. And so thinking about this spectrum of behaviours then, what has your research said about the most common underlying causes of these behaviours? And how can teachers go about approaching identifying these causes? And why is it useful to identify them? Yeah, so in terms of common causes, um, if we break it down into a really simple sort of most basic level, um, we might be engaging in behaviors to escape or avoid. So to 
get out of doing things that are difficult, um, that are anxiety provoking, um, that we don't want to do, or we might be engaging in behaviors to access something. So to be able to access the attention of our peers or access preferred um, materials like computer time at school. Um, and often it's a combination of both. And um, we can kind of loosely look at those two big picture functions, but that's not good enough because every child is unique and every child has their own unique learning history. So part of the process that we need to engage in is um, one which will allow us to identify the unique and personally relevant function for each student. Um, and that's where we use a process called functional behavior assessment, which is um, a tool, you could think of it as a decision-making process that has uh, years and years and years of, of research support behind it. Um, we know that positive behavior support plans or strategies that are informed by a functional behavior assessment are much more likely um, to be individualized to the student to effectively meet the student's needs and to teach the students new skills. And as a result of that, they're most effective for reducing behaviors of concern in schools that are interfering with the student's learning and participation. And so a functional behavior assessment, again, it's not a thing, it's not a manual, it's a decision-making process, it's a way of collecting information, and it involves a number of different steps. So the first step may be uh, meeting with people and gathering information from people who know the student well, and even the student themselves. So we would often um, ask open-ended questions to generate um, responses from, from important people, um, that are really rich. So we wanna know what does the behavior look like? When is the behavior most likely to occur? And what do you usually do to help them calm down? And the answers provided to these types of questions provide really rich information about the unique factors that may be contributing to challenging behavior. They help the team identify what the behavior looks like, how often it happens, what usually happens right before the behavior, and what usually happens right after. And we can also use this as an opportunity to gather information about things like the child's medical history, because sometimes underlying medical conditions impact behavior. We need to know about medications. Sometimes medications impact behavior or side effects impact behavior. We want to know how the child communicates, what they like, what they dislike, what's problematic for them. Um, how do they tell us when they need help? How do they tell us when something is too difficult? So these are all the types of questions we would try to ask. Then what we want to do as a next step is to look at the environment. We want to look at how the classroom is set up to promote the student's success. We can look at things like the seating arrangement, the lighting, temperature, noise level, the location of classroom materials to see if any of those things are causing discomfort um, or could be contributing to the student's behavior. We also want to make sure that the student is in an environment where they have lots of opportunities to practice new skills, where all sorts of um, uh, pro-social behavior is recognized and richly reinforced, um, and where the student can communicate effectively and the people around them understand their communication. We then want to look at the curriculum. 
So we want to see if the student actually has the foundational skills to successfully participate in instructional activities or if the curriculum needs to be differentiated and modified for the student. So sometimes children display challenging behavior at school because learning activities are too difficult, they don't have prerequisite skills. Again, kids do well when they can. So we need to make sure that they have the skills to actively participate. And we also have to look at the types of skills that may go beyond academic skills. Things like being able to pay attention, follow group instructions, independently retrieve materials, and ask for help. Then we wanna directly observe the student. So I often, as a consultant, would conduct direct observations during times when challenging behavior is most likely to occur. Because this is gonna allow me to really zoom in and look at well, what are the conditions when the behavior happens. What typically happens right before the behavior? We might call that a trigger. What does the behavior look like? What's the intensity of the behavior? And how do other people in the environment respond when that behavior occurs? We call that a consequence. So you can think of this as the ABC model. Call that antecedents, behaviors, consequences. So along with our ABCs, we also want to record the time of each instance of challenging behavior, the activity in progress, and who else was present. And this allows us to supplement some of our uh, working hypothesis data from meeting with other people and gathering information with some direct observational data. Um, this information is useful because when we can see how often the behavior is actually occurring in context, we can use those data as a baseline to then evaluate the effects of our behavior support strategies. So we can compare once we've implemented behavior support strategies, does the challenging behavior decrease relative to what we saw during our baseline observations? And the purpose of all of these different steps is ultimately to develop a hypothesis. We want to generate a working hypothesis about the why, about the cause or the reason for the student's challenging behavior. And we often um, see that challenging behavior serves a communication purpose. It is a way for the student to communicate their wants and needs in the moment. And then it's our job to help the student learn another way to communicate that's going to be more understandable to other people in the environment and more safe. And while these, um, the processes, the steps that Erin uh, uh, outlined there, uh, are, are great and have a huge body of evidence supporting their effectiveness. Um, my research is, my research showed showed me that the teachers that um, we surveyed clearly indicate that they feel really quite poorly prepared to engage in these processes and assessments. Uh, I think that might be one reason uh, why managing student behaviour is is front of mind for so many teachers. Um, there are some really positive signs that um, we've seen across education systems. Um, you know, both the public system and, and across independent school systems and the Catholic education system, that um, these practices and assessments are being um, adopted and advocated for a, as a way to understand student behavior and to generate uh, behavior support plans that are tailored to individual student needs and their contexts. Um, but again, if we have teachers that are not particularly well prepared to engage in processes like functional behavior assessment, and we have an increased expectation that they'll use these processes when they're in schools, or at least have the um, baseline knowledge to participate in these assessments, 
um, it has the potential to create a bit of a, uh, a shortfall or exacerbate um, feelings of um, uh, stress or, or, or pressure around student behavior. And so um, we've, uh, my research also uh, found that there were some more positive signs of um, the impact of in-service training. So schools are working uh, hard to equip their teachers in practice, um, which is great, um, but there is still room for improvement in that front too. And so in terms of going from working to identify the underlying causes for these behaviours to then effectively and respectfully addressing them, is there anything else that teachers should be keeping in mind when they're looking to do that throughout the year? Yes, great question. Too often something that I see is when assessments such as functional behaviour assessments are conducted, they're filed away and they don't lead to effective action. So we need to keep in mind that conducting an assessment is only the first step. And what's actually more important is how we use the information gathered as part of the functional behavior assessment to inform the design of those personalized, positive, and proactive behavior support strategies. So if we look at an example, we may have um, a case where we're observing a student in the classroom and we see that uh, problematic behavior is typically preceded by the delivery of academic instructions in the classroom. When these specific academic instructions are presented to the student, the student pushes over their chairs and screams. So they engage in some form of disruptive behavior and the typical consequence that we see is that the student is exited from the classroom. They're maybe sent to another classroom or they're sent to the principal's office. So we form a hypothesis that perhaps these behaviors are allowing the student a way to communicate that the work is too difficult and to avoid participating in these difficult or non-preferred classroom activities. But unfortunately, by exiting the student from the classroom, we're never really addressing the root cause of the behavior. So what do we do instead? Well, the first thing that we need to do is we need to look at the, the student's communication skills. We need to provide lots of opportunities for them to practice what we call a replacement behavior or a new behavior that allows the student to communicate their wants and needs in a more understandable way. So in this case, uh, replacement behavior might involve teaching the student to request a break from a difficult um, demand or help with a difficult task. And it's important that if the student is using a new communication behavior, that those responses are responded to and reinforced on a really rich schedule, really predictable ways. But that's not enough. We also have to make a curricular revision. So here's where it's really important for the teacher to be able to analyze the academic task to identify what parts of the task are difficult or non-preferred. Then we need to break it down. We need to break down the task into smaller teachable components and we need to give the students opportunities to practice um, at a level where they can be successful. And we need to reestablish participation and learning and participation in classroom activities as fun, easy and rewarding. And then we can start to gradually increase the difficulty level of the task. And of course, yeah, in... <laughs> That's balanced by the, the, the requirements of a 
teaching a class of lots of kids. Um, and, and so I think some of my research findings are not that surprising. And I think if you go into any staff room in Australia, they'd be like, oh, great. So you're telling us that teachers lack time. That's cool. I could have told you that over a coffee. <laughs> um, but, but that's one of the findings of my research. The teachers indicated that they, that they really did lack the time um, to effectively do some of these things. Um, and I know how that feels, you know, managing the competing demands of a classroom, it can be really tough. You've got the diverse learning needs of all students. You've got uh, a range of different um, behaviors um, that you might be managing uh, at any one time from really low level stuff through to really complex stuff like Erin described before. And some of that's sort of co-occurring, it's all going off at once. Um, and, and I think um, you, they've also got the administrative uh, side of things as well. Teachers are involved in multiple teams with multiple meetings. They've got to build and maintain relationships with support staff if they've got them in their rooms, with their colleagues, um, with their families. They're, they're working alongside and for school leadership. And sometimes it can be really tough to balance all this stuff out. And so, you know, a, a lot of teachers will say, this all sounds wonderful, but, but when am I going to do this and how am I going to do this? Um, and, and it can be really tough to find that time. Um, and, and also, um, whenever we're dealing with problem behavior in a classroom or behaviors that interfere with, uh, with, with learning for the student or for peers, there's, there's often a lot of follow-up. Um, and, and what we can find is we just get caught in a bit of a, a reactive spiral, you know, where, where we're chasing our tails and we're spending our time um, doing follow-up. Um, and so the concerns around processes like functional behavior assessment and, and participating in, in um, observations and the interviews and things like that um, being so time consuming, one way we might be able to think about that time consuming is we're actually um, spending our time proactively. We're, we're looking to understand the problem behavior and, and rather than spend our time reacting and cleaning up the mess that comes along with problem behavior, we're actually trying to plan for and address it on the front end so that we don't have to do the cleanup on, on the back end. Um, and it just means that we're better placed also if we're meeting students' needs and building these skills, we're just better placed um, to maintain really positive relationships rather than needing lots of reprimands and lots of demands. Um, so I, I, my suggestion is that we're, we're, paying, for, we're paying up front. Um, we're not taking a loan. Uh, it may not cost us... Um, more time, but we might spend a bit more time up front. But it is it is work though. Like it's recognizing that this is hard work, and that it's not necessarily work that a teacher needs to do in isolation. This is where teachers can be kind to themselves and calling colleagues for support, put their hand up for expertise. Um, whether it's through um, we have Triple S or the Student Support Services Offices, um, psychologists, speech therapists, um, with within our um, Department of Education and Training, the structures that. Erin um, was describing before, um, to, to put the hand up and to call for either external help or um, those within the system, within the school that have knowledge to support them. And then to engage in a team-based approach. If we can share the load across a team, that'll make a big difference. I think just to add to that, one thing that I feel is that the functional behavior assessment process that I just described, I don't think teachers should do that on their own. I think that teachers should know what it is so that they can be a partner in that process when it is conducted as part of a larger team. 
So I think it's really important that when there are really significant concerns about a student because of their um, behaviors at school, is that we look at how to build a team around that student uh, right away so that it's a shared responsibility and shared distribution of time. And some of the work that, that Russ and I are doing right now is really working with the department to create new roles, um, such as behavior coaches, in regions so that there are actually people who have the skill set who can be called upon to come in and work with teachers and school leaders as part of that team when these problems are identified. Um, and like I said before, I think in the past, the emphasis has been too much on let's just do an assessment. Here's a page of recommendations. See you later. Now we need to focus on um, specialists who are able to write a positive behavior support plan and coach teachers and others in the implementation of those strategies and monitor the effectiveness of those strategies over time. And again, share that responsibility with the classroom teacher so that this isn't all additional work on the shoulders of the teacher. So we're obviously at the start of the school year right now, but looking ahead to throughout this year, how can teachers really approach adapting their classroom management strategies in an effective way as new behaviour issues arise? And as you say, monitor these issues that will crop up as the year goes on. Is it really important to be adaptable in that way? Yeah, I think we need to flip the script when it comes to supporting kids with their challenging behaviour at school. Too often the conversation centres around what should we do when the problem happens? How do I make the problem stop? That reactive approach, as Russ mentioned, sort of like cleaning up the aftermath. Instead, we need to think about what can we do to proactively prevent these problems from happening in the first place? And one thing that's been shown to actually protect against the development of challenging behavior at school is the delivery of high quality, engaging academic instruction. So teaching, is one of the best protective factors against the development of challenging behavior. However, the teaching has to be um, really planned, systematic, and differentiated for students who need um, additional help or the level of instruction sort of customized. So um, ideally, this academic instruction should include clear learning goals. So teachers provide students with clear um, wording around what they should be able to say and do at the end of each lesson, providing models or worked examples um, so the students have the opportunity to see the teacher perform the skill or the steps towards the permanent sort of end goal. Um, the students should have lots of opportunities for active student responding. We don't want a bunch of passive students who are just listening to the teacher talk and getting bored and getting into mischief. So we want to create lessons where the students have lots of opportunities to practice, 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 and they have lots of opportunities to get formative feedback or um, little check-ins and corrections um, as they're practicing. And then finally, we wanna look at ways to incorporate a lot of mini assessment into the work that we do in classrooms to see how our students are traveling. And that will tell us whether we're ready to move on and teach the next concept because the majority of students are demonstrating mastery or if we need to take a step back and do some reteaching because a lot of our students are struggling. 
Yeah, I, I just want to emphasize, um, just re-emphasize the importance of that re- high quality effective instruction a- as a way to support student behavior. Um, but there are times that uh, behavior is getting in the way of students accessing um, the instruction that's being delivered. Um, and, and like you said, um, Dominique, w- we need to monitor these plans over time. We actually need to be checking in to see how they're progressing because the, the, we should see progress in, in an effectively um, designed behavior support plan. If we've, if we've done our job really well and we've got a, an accurate hypothesis, we should see behavior improve. Um, and, and as we do, it's just monitoring and um, looking for the next skill development. And, and if teachers are taking into their classrooms the idea that behavior um, is a result of interactions with environments that may highlight skill deficits for students, then they can approach um, their students' behavior and the progress through the year by assessing how they're going behaviorally and socially. Um, I mean, I, I often have teachers ask me, uh, so what do we do now about this problem behavior? And the answer is to teach, which is great because we're talking to teachers <laughs> and, um, and to assess how that's going, which is great because teachers, uh, we assess. Uh, so the responses to problem behavior are to teach and to assess um, and to constantly check as part of our assessment is this environment still working for this young person? You know, like back to the, the it's essentially to run through those steps that Aaron described before, um, just, just gently. And if we see things spike, um, well, I mean, I have bad days. Uh, there, are, there are nights that my kids keep me up. There are days that I'm caught in traffic. So I have high stress periods. I have um, times when things are, are, are difficult or I have a lack of sleep or coffee, <laughs> whatever it might be. And so it's, you know, th- there are, um, you know, situations that might bring about a change. But as part of our monitoring and assessing, um, we should see those. And if we're not sure, then it might actually be worth taking some measurable um, data on it. If, we're, if it looks like it's going backwards, take account. How, how often are we seeing this? And this is where that team, um, if the team is meeting regularly, semi-regularly, they should be reflecting on the goals, how are we progressing towards it, with some kind of measurable um, like assessment of success or, or, or lack of progress towards those goals. And then it allows us to engage in the process again. And looking at a whole school level then, just finally, is there anything useful to implement to really assist teachers in identifying the underlying causes of these behaviours and then using that to inform their classroom management strategy? Is it really about looking at it from a team perspective, like you've mentioned? Um, Yes. And the good news is that there's an evidence-based framework, which we both really advocate for, called School-Wide Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. It's kind of a mouthful, so we're just going to call it SWPBIS. And this is a framework that can be adopted by entire schools to prevent challenging behavior before it develops and to guide the selection and use of different evidence-based behavioral supports for kids who need more targeted intervention. Again, SWPBIS isn't an intervention. It's a framework, and sometimes we refer to it as a multi-tiered system of support. In other words, all students experience positive and preventative classroom management practices that aim to support their social, behavioral, and academic success at school. And then students who do not respond to these initial practices receive progressively more individualized and educative interventions to address their unique needs. 
So some people uh, who are working in, say, the Catholic education system or independent schools or in states not Victoria may know this as Positive Behaviour for Learning or PB4L or by an, a number of other names. Um, and a lot of teachers would be familiar with a triangle. Uh, and, and the triangle has uh, three tiers, uh, like Aaron described. Uh, the, the, the base of the triangle, the universal tier, is delivered to all students um, with... Uh, students who don't respond to those interventions. And those interventions typically are uh, making sure that we have the expectations, uh, you know, what, what positive behaviour within our school looks like really clearly articulated. And not just on our wall, but something that we refer to in practice, um, uh, establishing really clear routines for moving around the classroom, from moving between classrooms. Um, and, and again, not in a bossy way, like, you know, you will all move this way, but rather when we move this way, it allows us to enter a space calmly and engage effectively in our learning. And it culminates, if students don't respond um, to the tier two interventions, it culminates in a functional behavior assessment that we described earlier. And to make sure that we really do meet their individual needs, because it's just recognizing that what we've done so far hasn't worked, and we need to tailor that to meet your specific need, because um, there's there are some obvious skill deficits or some environmental changes that uh, we need to make. So I think it's just a few take homes. I think we would want to reiterate that kids do well when they can. The very best way to help kids with their challenging behavior is by teaching new skills. Yeah. Um, and we can help kids effectively when we look into the environment to understand why the behavior is happening in a specific context and assume that behavior is a form of communication. It may be, it may, in fact, for some students, challenging behavior may be a very adaptive response to a very maladaptive context. So we constantly need to be reflecting on how we interact with the students and how we design our classrooms to support their success. Yeah, and to follow that on with um, the responses, like Aaron said, are teaching responses and monitoring and assessing how that's going, which is the wheelhouse of teachers. So I, I guess we, we can take some comfort in um, teachers, whilst they say in, in some of my research that they're not particularly well prepared um, specifically for, for some of this stuff, the answers are things they're familiar with. And, and the more we think about behavior, the way we think about other learning, you know, academic learning, the more success we can, we can have. And if we monitor and assess, um, and, and then we look and think, what skills can I teach? Um, that's right in the wheelhouse of teachers. And, and, and so we can, we can claim some of that ground. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. A lot of resources were mentioned throughout this conversation, so if you'd like to take a look at any of them, they're all listed in the transcript of this episode, which you can find under the podcast tab at our website, teachermagazine.com. If this topic is one of interest to you, you might want to catch up on episode five in our behaviour management series, where we speak to Dr Jeff Thomas from the University of Tasmania on planning for positive behaviour at the beginning of the school year. To keep up to date with all of our podcast series, make sure to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple Music and SoundCloud.